HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city. We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. Every week, I sit with a new guest, and we trace the trajectory of their life and career. From early childhood to first jobs in food to their current projects, we dig deep into the choices they made, the twists and turns of their career, and the mistakes and successes that they will never forget. Today's guest is John Stage, the owner of Dinosaur Barbecue, with eight locations across New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. They have a line of rubs and sauces available nationwide, and the cookbook John released in 2001 has sold over 175,000 copies. With over 30 years in the business, John has seen it all. Dinosaur started as a mobile pop-up in 1983 at the Harley Rendezvous in New York, a motorcycle meetup, and in 1988, along with his then-partner, they opened a location on Willow Street in Syracuse, New York, still open today. John back then had tattoos, he's still got them now, but he had long hair, a huge bike, and a love of barbecue, but no professional business experience and very little food experience. Along the way, he's had lots of partners, some that are no longer with the brand and some that are workers that have been converted into owners. As the company rapidly expanded in the early 2000s, they opened up many locations with the Soros Partners. Today on the show, we'll talk about how it all began with a 55-gallon drum sawed in half, what partnering with the Soros family did for the business, both positive and negative, how having a consumer package good line can impact a brick-and-mortar restaurant, and maybe John will even clue me into some secrets about motorcycle culture along the way. John, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Eli. I want to begin at the beginning. Uh, let's talk about your childhood. Where were sure. you born? Uh, what did your parents do? And did you grow up in the type of house that could have ever, uh, ever been the trajectory that set you on op opening up a, a barbecue restaurant? Oh, that's a lot to unpack there. Let's see. I was born in um, uh, Nyack, West Havistraw. I was born in uh, Nyack Hospital. I uh, grew up in West Havistraw, then moved to... Um, uh, Long Island, Huntington Station, and then when I was 13 years old, um, moved to Syracuse, New York. And so you're in Syracuse. What do your parents do, and what kind of kid are you? Studious, well-behaved, badly behaved? Uh, let's see. My, uh, my mother was a secretary. My father worked for the Grand Union Company. Um, they're not around anymore, but he's a produce man for the Grand Union uh, Company. Um, very bad kid. <laughs> Very bad kid. Yeah, I, um, I got into a lot of trouble when I was a young man. 
some of that trouble ended up getting you into prison. Yeah, yeah. You found yourself at 18, you were incarcerated, and you ended up working in the prison mess hall. Yes. Was that a terrible job? Did it, was it, did it inspire <laughs> you in any way? Was it, uh, was that the type of job that people were really, uh, hoping to get in prison? How, tell me about that experience a little bit. Well, the experience was probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, it got me into the kitchen and I started in, um, I started in the general kitchen. My job was, um, taking, you know, 55 pound bag of eggs and mixing them with water, the powdered eggs. And then I'd get up on the line and scoop out the food. So I always got kind of a rush from the action of, you know, 1,500 people coming <laughs> through a line at one time. And I really enjoyed that. And then I was, uh, you know, I got connected with a few other people and I got promoted to um, the officer's mess hall where now it was a little, you know, the food was a little better because you fed all the, all the cops in there. And uh, I loved it. It was, uh, it, it actually started my career in the food service business. Did any aspect of that uh, contribute? Did, did, it, did it straighten you out a little bit at all? Did it turn you into uh, the type of person who you were starting to think more about, like a professional career and what you might do afterwards? Was there a certain amount of uh, strictness that was within the kitchen that was different than the prison strictness? <laughs> Yeah, you had to uh, you had to perform in that kitchen, or you you got bounced. Um, so it really it did give me a discipline. It gave me something to actually look forward to, which when you're doing when you're doing time, you you need that because you got to manage your time. When you know thinking about getting out, I'm uh, like prison worked for me. I knew I never wanted to go back there, but when I got out, um, you know I bounced from one job to the other. Did a lot of construction and. Um, I wasn't good at anything. And then um, I, you know, kind of harkened back to what I was doing in the joint. And I always wanted to open up my own, you know, to open up a restaurant was pretty much the dream. Um, and then um, me and my partners decided to, it wasn't a restaurant, but we decided to uh, get in the food business by feeding bikers at these events. Did you see a void in the marketplace at the event uh, or did you, were you a bike rider and you thought I want to serve food or did you go to these events and say, wow, there's no food here. This is a great opportunity. <laughs> uh, the second. Yeah. I, I started, I got out in, um, oh man, I got out in 1981 March by May. I had my first Harley, but I hung out with uh, bikers on the inside. So it, it got that in my head, like, man, I got to get, I didn't even know how to, I, I bought my first Harley before I even knew how to ride a motorcycle. And I learned on that. And then, so I started going to these bike events and we did notice that, man, there was the, f there was food, those hamburgers, hot dogs, and you know, things like that. But it was done by volunteers and all the volunteers, they were not food people. So the food was awful at these. So I got the idea to um, go to the, the event coordinators and say, hey, uh, let, me, let me do the food, let us do the food, and we'll whack you back 10%. And they were actually more than happy to do that because I don't think they were making any money on it. So that's how it started. And then I, you know, started doing that event, that event. There was a lot to do in the biker world from swap meets and club functions and things like that. And then once that started drying up, uh, we started getting in the fair business. So then I started going up and down the East Coast doing fairs and festivals. Barbecue is not that easy, though. There's a no. lot of elements to barbecue that are significantly more complicated mm -hmm. than throwing burgers or hot dogs on. Oh, you yeah. could have done, I don't know, Italian sausages. There's a lot of carnival fair that you well, could have... that's what I did do. That, that you could have, you know, done, right? Right. And so at first you were doing hamburgers, hot dogs, or... No, I, we were doing sausage, peppers, and onions. Okay. And uh, uh, Delmonico ribeye steak sandwiches. So I always manned the, um, uh, the Italian... Uh, side of it. My partner did the charbroiling. And then when, but we called ourselves Dinosaur Barbecue because we were like, wow, all our competitors have like a marinara sauce. We're going to do a barbecue sauce. So that, that was our uh, point of differentiation was barbecue. So now we started heading into the South and uh, we're starting to get strange looks by people like, hey, why are you calling yourself barbecue? And I was like, man, we got the sauce, boom, boom, boom. And they were, no, this ain't barbecue. You know, barbecue is, and I remember a lot of people saying, you got to dig a hole in the ground. You got to do this, this. I was like, man, what are they talking about? 
and then I went to Memphis, and that was like my, the Shangri-La of barbecue for me. This was probably around 1985, 86, and I came back. I was like, man, we are changing everything. So gone was the sausage and peppers and steaks, and now we started doing what was probably pretty bad barbecue, if I, if I look back on it. Well, you start with uh, brisket and ribs or no, chicken? No, no, brisket or? didn't come to later. It okay. was, um, it was um, uh, chicken. Um, we, we stayed with the sausage because, you know, I have a love of sausage. And then we got into ribs. So it was really chicken and ribs became the dinosaur's cornerstone. And then later came pork and brisket and all that stuff. And when you were down in Memphis, was there something specific was it the whole city or was there one place or one bite of food that you said oh a barbecue i'm hooked i gotta switch my whole because it's actually kind of a pretty big pivot from sausage and peppers to ribs there there's not really a carryover there they don't (laughs) cross so both pork but that's about it um let's see so i i rode my motorcycle down and i started hitting barbecue joint after barbecue joint some of it i was like man i just don't get it it's okay it wasn't blowing me away Actually, there's three places that really influenced me is Payne's, the Cozy Corner, and um, Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Those are the three ones that I went, God damn, that's what, now that's what I'm talking about. It was that, that taste where, you know, where the smoke and the meat, everything came together. And then the light, then it was like, I got it. You know, I, I, well, I didn't have it, <laughs> but I had the idea. And, and then it started the, the learning of the craft from that point. At that point, what was more exciting to you? Was it uh, the camaraderie? Was it getting better at cooking? Or was it the business? Was it generating income? What, what was exciting to you about those early days at the motorcycle meetups? See, it was uh, sometimes you'd make a lot of money. The next, if it rained or something bad happened, bad location, we'd lose it all. So, you know, the, I used to have my bank in my boot, my operating money in my right pocket, my personal money in uh, my left pocket, and then we were heavily armed at that point. And that, that's, that was the bank of everything right there, right there on me. So it was, it was staying alive and paying bills was the number one concern. And then when I discovered barbecue as a genre, I was like, oh, my God, this just, it just, I became infatuated with it. So was that a wild time? You're barbecuing all day, motorcycles all around, probably partying at night, going yeah. from city to city. Yeah. It sounds it sounds like a lawless land, to be honest. It sounds yeah. like it would it would be not the best place to be carrying around thousands of bucks right. or the cash and a lot of equipment. Right. Did you have like a home base commissary kitchen? Were you working <laughs> out of an apartment? Like what no. where you just showed up with raw meat and just slapped barbecue sauce on it? Yeah. So if, if you Basically, our life existed, and we'd start to do swap meets in the spring, and then we'd uh, hit the road. And you would just go from place to place. You would break down on Monday, show up the next day on a Tuesday, and most fairs and festivals started on Tuesday, Wednesday. So you tried to root yourself where the it wasn't too long of a, a trip. And um, it was a very unhealthy lifestyle. <laughs> it was a lot of partying and a lot of, a lot of carrying on and really unsustainable for the long haul. Well, so that's why I got into the restaurant business. You did it for five years. You were yeah. a young guy at that right. point. So exactly. the turnaround is easier when you're 21, 22. You right. can have a lot of fun <laughs> until four in the morning and yes. still wake up the next day. But at what point um, did a restaurant become a real viable option? And I'm curious if you started saving money while you were traveling around with the sole reason Mm. of opening up a restaurant or did you go out and fundraise and not have any money saved? Well, there wasn't a person in the world that was going to give us any money. So (laughs) (laughs) we knew we had a, what we made on the road is how we opened the restaurant. And uh, a a big event is my son was born and I was really a terrible father. I, I was never around. I, you know, I just, that's when I decided I had to, you know, I had to get uh, in a permanent place to raise this kid right. So that that was like really the one of the impetuses of opening a restaurant. And did your family bring you back to Syracuse? Is that why that location? Because you had been traveling up and down the, the mm-hmm. eastern seaboard. I'm sure you'd seen a lot of cities where you probably thought to yourself, maybe I could settle here. But you ended up coming mm-hmm. back up to New York. Syracuse was a uh, home base. Okay. Yeah. And how'd you find the, the location? It's a cool building for it's people that building. have never been there, that have never seen it. Can you describe yeah. it a little bit and, and how you found the property and, uh, and what appealed to you about it? Well, um, 
I had friends who owned a motorcycle shop that were above the restaurant, and there was this big ramp that, ironically, if your bike was broken down, you had to push it up this ramp. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so second-floor repair shop sounds. <laughs> right, but, but that was the first Cadillac dealer in Syracuse, and that ramp went back to, that's where they drove the Cadillacs up to, to fix it. Um, downstairs was an old shot in a beer joint that had been around for 50 years. And in the front room was the diner. So you had the old lady, it was called the N&H Tavern. And the old lady cooked the food in the diner, and the old man ran the bar. And I loved this place. I mean, any excuse to go to, uh, to both of those, um, I did. But coincidentally, my friends had the bike shop upstairs. They were about 80 years old, and they were... They were exhausted. Imagine, like, I'm, God, I'm going to be 60. Um, <laughs> as tired as you get now, I can't imagine them at 75, 80. But they wanted out. And uh, I wanted in. And it, we worked it out. And so you open up a barbecue restaurant. It's sort of a it's a, it's a bar as well, mm. right? It's definitely a place that no, people can come no and bar. hang out. There was no bar at first. Oh, that was later on. Yeah. I, okay. could, I could not get a liquor license till we opened up in 88. I could not get a liquor license till almost 92. Um, and then when I had, uh, so we, we closed the bar down and just had this 900 foot restaurant in the front room. And so what was the immediate, if there was one, reaction to this new barbecue restaurant in town? <laughs> Did you have crickets, lines out the door? What were you hoping for and what was the reality? Absolute crickets. <laughs> it was awful. So coming from the road, you would, um, you know, you're in a fair and you got thousands of people, you know, foot traffic in front of you. We thought for some reason that was going to translate to us opening up a restaurant. And we opened up because uh, we started with breakfast, believe it or not. And uh, we were up in breakfast, lunch, dinner, and uh, absolute crickets. It was awful. I wanted to shoot myself. <laughs> and that went on for about a year. And then, you know, one plate of food at a time. And, you know, we did not look like traditional restaurateurs at that time. And it was motorcycles out front. And it was just a different time back then. Bikers were looked at differently, um, you know, in the late 80s than they are now. I mean, you're... Your dentist is on a Harley now. It doesn't matter. But back then, it was a little different perception of things. And then um, once we got our liquor license, that's when things started turning around. Did you have difficulty with not only the liquor license, but also other aspects of setting up the business mm -hmm. based on that negative uh, stereotype, that perception of the biker? You had mm. you know long hair and tattoos, mm. and you, you had come out of prison. Did mm -hmm. that... Uh, did that make your life a lot more difficult beyond the restaurant just being a hard thing to, to open? If it did, I didn't notice it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's not what I was, um, you know, that's not even what I thought about, to be honest with you. Um, I was going out with a girl. Um, uh, she lived in Miami. And her, uh, um, I, w I was more thinking about, man, if this don't work, and I'm going to move to Miami. Because <laughs> it was like her uh, father um, wanted me to work construction with him. I was like, damn, I can <laughs> There's always that little light at the end of the tunnel yeah. that I that I s stuck with. So no, I didn't I didn't think of that. And like that and way. so you were able to get the liquor license at that point. You did bring on two other partners, yes. right? Yep. And they had uh, a distribution business, right? They were involved in in alcohol or food in some capacity. Yeah, correct? Um, my partner Larry, uh, you know, uh, just recently deceased. Um, you know. Rest in peace, Larry. Um, he was um, he was a liquor salesman, and I knew Larry, my God, for years before that. But we we lost uh, lost touch for a while. He came in one night. I was I was mopping up the floor, uh, closing down. And he came in, started looking around, like, "Hey, I heard this place is getting a liquor license." And he goes, "John, is that you?" I was like, "Larry, what are you doing?" Boom. Next thing you know, we start um, talking. I was like, "Yeah, I want to open up the bar end and blah blah blah." He goes, "Do not talk to another person." I was like, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah." Um, give me a week and I'll get back to you. And he did. And he came back and said, I want to be your partner. And him and his wife at the time, uh, Nancy, um, yeah, became, became our partners. At the beginning, those first one, two years, you and your partner, are you doing everything? Are you doing the cooking? <laughs> yes. Are you doing the front of house? I'm curious about the the barbecue smoking uh -huh. setup first off. Uh -huh. And then also, what was your 
customer forward facing mentality like? You know, were, were, were you pushing for the uh, rough around the edges? This is like a cool guy vibe, or or were you bending over backwards? Uh, the customer's always right. Uh, well, number one, um, we wanted anybody and anyone to get in there to pay a bill, so we didn't. Uh, I, you know, it wasn't that well thought out. It was just, um, oh man. Well, it was like you came in. I took your order. I cooked your food. I may ring you up, but I did bring <laughs> out the food to you. And then after lunch run, so in the morning, I did all the, you know, we're in the smokehouse, we're, you know, doing um, um, whatever specials. Then in the afternoon, you get back into prep. Then you come back out to the line. And we had a, a routine at that time after lunch every day. We smoked a big fat joint after lunch to get right for the second, uh, second uh, turn. And it was all consuming. But there was, at no point did we say, you know, we're gonna be this cool biker bar and we're gonna have a certain attitude. We were just who we were. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just once we got the booze, people put it together. Because barbecue wasn't, you know, it wasn't a Northeastern thing. So people really didn't know what the heck this was. They knew ribs, of course, but what we were trying to do. And and, and I'm gonna say, I don't don't know if the barbecue was any good, so. were you using half barrel smoke like smokers? What exactly was your setup like? Were you using a specific type of wood? Were you just <laughs> I don't even know to be flying honest by the you. seat of your pants? It was a bit? yeah, it was the fifty five gallon drum, and then I'll never forget our first piece of uh, like high tech equipment. We bought this thing called a smokerama. The smokerama was a circular pit that you hung the ribs and you put wood chips in it, and it was just terrible. And then we. Um, graduated from there we had the barrel and then we got god years later i think it was a, a an old hickory and that became our you know our, our pit at that the most high-tech pit that we had was there a point how many years in that you really felt maybe a little comfortable like wow things are really working and they've been working for x amount of time mm-hmm. i'm not every week worried about if we're going to be able to keep the lights on Uh, at at what point was that? And, and did you then start thinking about what the next steps would be? Or did you not really have a grand vision at that point? yet? There there wasn't a grand vision. It, it, it it really happened, you know, very organically. Um, um, After 91, we started doing live music also. So, um, uh, Dr. Blue, Kelly James came to me, um, blue singer and said hey man you know you know go great with this barbecue is uh live music i was like man i don't know nothing about putting on live music he goes don't you worry about it i'll do everything and it was uh, every thursday was a uh, blue thursday with dr blue and at that point that then it started like damn all right it's starting to happen here then we started booking some more and then i booked started booking national acts there i mean we had everyone from oh man jimmy rogers um um, James Cotton, all the old school blues guys started coming through there. So it, then it became like a scene at nighttime because, you know, if you look at the trajectory of blues, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up. We, we hit it right at the right time. So it was almost like barbecue Harleys and um, um, blues had a moment and it all came together and created a, you know, a pretty good scene in Syracuse. So for those first couple of years after we got the, you know, I had to teach myself the bar. I didn't know how to run a bar. I never had um, wait waitresses before, so we had to learn the whole full service thing. So we were always playing catch up. Then I started making the barbecue sauce. People were like, hey, I want to buy sauce. So now I get into the sauce business. And I met these guys, uh, Razorback Cookers out of uh, Blyville, Arkansas. And they said, you come down, we'll charge you by the hour, you make your own sauce. So now we start bottling. I'd fly into Memphis, rent a car, make my sauce, ship it. And I had a great time. That was, I love I love them guys, and I, I always had a good time in uh, Memphis. Then it started popping a little bit, and it didn't make sense anymore to uh, to do that. So now we found a place in Rochester. So I started going to Rochester, and I looked at this beautiful old building, a 1905 train station, and it was empty, and it was been empty for years. I was like, what you know, what what is going on with that? Maybe we should put a dinosaur there because I'd get on and off and see it every once a week when I'd go to Rochester. So that was why we did the second one. It wasn't like, an, okay, we're gonna expand and do this. 
I fell in love with that piece of property. Beautiful old train station perched over the river. And that, of course, created its own set of problems because I didn't plan for what happens with two... Operating two restaurants is different than one restaurant. So, What was the craziest part about that? It seems like at every step that you've had to add something on... Mm -hmm. You just figure it out somehow. So yeah. I'm curious, the the major challenge of that is uh, quality control, mm -hmm. logistics, and oversight, right? Yes. You can't be in both places at the same right. time. Right. How did you at first uh, tackle that? Did you hire a bunch of people? Did you get a manager that you trusted? What, what, were, what, were, the, what well, were the ways? Yeah, we did. We hired a manager, <clears throat> and then I just was... In Syracuse in the morning, Rochester at night, Rochester back to say it was unsustainable again, um, living that type of lifestyle. And then, um, yeah, then it, uh, then I got some people and uh, yeah, it, yeah. Did it ever, did it ever get to a point where you thought to yourself when you had two, I'm talking mm -hmm. about where you thought to yourself, I think that this is a big brand. Mm -hmm. Do you, did you think this is something, you know, you've got the sauces mm -hmm. going. Clearly, there's a scene at both mm -hmm. locations. Did you start to put together a business plan and take it out to anyone, or were you really just focusing on those two? Just focusing on those two. And, uh, and so we'll talk more about how it expanded after the break, but mm -hmm. right before we take a break, I, I'm just curious, when you got these two locations, are the menus the same, and are you doing the same barbecue at both places mm -hmm. or was there were there things that you had to change that were dictated by you being spread so thin in the location or was mm -hmm. it exactly like a stamp of the, the no okay no. It, it it changed um i i, I never wanted like I, I i never thought i could replicate syracuse like it that happened just so organically and i didn't want it to be have that chain feel to it so yeah rochester had the barbecue is the same but the building looks so different, and uh, the side dishes were a little different, and maybe a few appetizers were different. So uh, that will always, you know, as even we went further uh, with new locations down the road, that was the template. The, the restaurant's got to feel like its own place and not feel like Syracuse. I don't know if that was the best business move, but it was, uh, it's what I felt at the time. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about Dinosaur Barbecue with John. Stick with us here on The Line. Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in Northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin's cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions, and combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is John Stage, owner and founder of Dinosaur Barbecue with eight locations across New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Before the break, we were talking about all the, the ways that you uh, maybe you grew, but you didn't know exactly mm. how to grow and you you were kind of making it up as you went along but you were having great success you had multiple locations uh, at a certain point in the 2000s you get approached by a larger investor group mm -hmm. uh, and this is when the Soros family approaches you and says mm -hmm. you've got a great thing going mm -hmm. we'd like to get involved tell us a little bit about that was that a was that a shock to you did you see something like that coming um, well, we, we had a lot of people that want that approached us over the years and I, I just was never ready for it. And then, um, my two partners at that time 
were looking to exit the business. They, you know, they had been in a while, and they, um, yeah, well, they were they were both ten years older than me, and they, and they were just like, you know, we're 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 looking to get out of this somehow, and it, it was kind of a perfect opportunity at that point because, you know, I, I had no idea how they would how we would perform some kind of exit like that, and um, that was one of the reasons that partnership came into came into being. Would you consider yourself at that point? Were you a very ambitious restaurateur? Were mm. you a business person who was saying to yourself, "I really want to grow and I want to go after"? I don't even know if it was called was it called venture capital at that point. Now it's the VC companies. I guess it was just uh, no private equity. Private equity, yeah. yeah, yeah. Private so, equity. but were you clearly people were knocking on the door? But did you can consider yourself all right? I'm a restaurateur. Mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna steer this ship into a multi-unit large business. Well, it, it, again, it evolved into that. I had to start thinking about that because private equity is not going to give you money if, unless there is expansion. So I always like a good caper. I always like you know a good hustle or you know what's next, and this provided that opportunity, you know, for what's next. Um, so that was around 2008, and then if you look at what happened in 2008, the world kind of melted down financially. So we grew very slow. And, and, and I'm good for about, and now of course, we get an infrastructure together. So um, after we did New York, I decided like, wow, I need a little more layer of leadership in here because I can't be running all over the place. So once when Soros came into it, they provided, um, you know, they provided that infrastructure. They, provide, they, they brought in a lot of good things initially. And um, uh, we grew about one a year. That was the most I can handle. I am not, I cannot handle more than that. And that's where, um, you know, we came at a crossroads a few years later that they wanted to expand a lot more than what I was, I'm, I'm going to say capable, wanting to, willing to, and capable of, because I can do one. I'm pretty good at that, but I'm not good at three or four a year. So I stepped back in 2013 and <clears throat> brought in, I said, uh, you know, if they're going to, if you guys want you know, this type of expansion, you got you to bring somebody else in. A, who knows how to do it. B, loves doing it because it's just not me. So I stepped back for a little bit, right? Probably around, probably around 2014, I guess it was. And I became uh, more of an advisor than a day-to-day guy. So. And so just rewinding back a little bit to that 2009, 2010 time frame, mm-hmm. everybody – Pretty much everybody that that has a restaurant business right now in the back of their mind, mm-hmm. what they're thinking is, am I going to be able to craft a strong enough narrative and mm-hmm. P&L sheet mm-hmm. so that someone's going to come knocking on my door and give mm-hmm. me money? Mm-hmm. So that happened to you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, looking back now, would you have made the same decision? Um, you know, at the time, Yes. Because it was again, my partners wanted to to get out, and I liked these guys. They were they were good dudes, um, so it, it wasn't any regret really until I pulled back, and then it became a weird situation of me being an older owner and founder, and, and philosophically dis, you know not on board with the the growth trajectory. So um, that's when things got a little little screwy. In between 2010 and 2015. Mm-hmm. Seven restaurants open, mm-hmm. two of them, Chicago and Baltimore, obviously outside of the mm-hmm. sort of normal realm of right. your geographical locations, right. they close. Mm-hmm. It's your baby. It's mm-hmm. your namesake. You're attached to it. Mm-hmm. How did that feel to have those restaurants close? And were you able to – were you in a position to really influence what was going on? Or had you already at that point been sort of mm-hmm. – removed a little bit so that yeah. was it out of your control and out of your purview well it, uh, you, you know you go through some funny things uh psych, psych you know um psychologically when you do step back so if you look at chicago um i, I didn't operate the restaurant I, I i was there maybe five times so i didn't get the blood sweat and tears into it that would have been you know where i would have felt bad about it it, it, it sucked. It always sucked, but I, I wasn't. It wasn't my baby at that point. So, um, and the same thing with Baltimore. I, I, I didn't. I didn't run it, so I wasn't involved in it as I was before. So, um, we never should have been in these places. So, 
now that you've had your businesses open for such a long time and you've really you've gone through all the stages that a restaurateur does you've opened one two units that are sort of privately owned you've mm-hmm. gone the the private equity route you've mm-hmm. expanded to other cities you've kind of done everything you've mm-hmm. done cpg so i'm wondering uh, you know people that listen to this show they're just getting started maybe mm-hmm. they have an idea for a concept in their head mm-hmm. what type of advice can you give to someone who thinks um, I'm opening up a concept on a small budget mm-hmm. or a mid-level budget and mm-hmm. they're hoping to attract capital? What, if you were going to maybe invest in someone, mm-hmm. what would you tell them to to do and and how would they put themselves in a good position to attract what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Wow. Let me see. The restaurant business is so different now than, let's say, when 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 I started it, you you said the wild west, and it, and it really was back then. Um, if you look at the economics of opening up, when I opened up at Harlem in two thousand three, two thousand four, I was paying fourteen dollars a foot. <laughs> that same neighborhood is one hundred and fifty dollars a foot right now. Yeah. So to that young entrepreneur, you well, you know, like, are you are we in New York City? Are we in Syracuse? There's so much easier places to do business than New York right now. So you really, you've you've to an investor, they really care about one thing: how are they going to get paid back, and how are they going to make money off this deal? So you have to, you you really have to have your shit together more than let's say I did back then, because I, I could freelance it. But if I was uh, the same person with that second restaurant, I said, all right, I am going to open this restaurant. I, I never had a business plan. These things just happen. So you got to have an airtight business plan. Why do you want to exist? How can you, how can this space make money? And what is it in this so crowded restaurant world right now? Why, why are you different? And because there's, again, there wasn't this many restaurants back then. As there, I, I don't think there's ever been more restaurants than there are right now. So competition is, is harder. The operating environment is harder. The rents are harder. The government's harder. It, it's not a, it's, it's a tough business. The I really would is, put that out. The too. advice is don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, anyone that does ask me, I just talk about how hard it is mm-hmm. and how are you going to overcome that? You know, wh- why should you exist? is really the question I ask. But you couldn't stay away because in 2018, <laughs> you you basically, it, it, correct me <clears throat> if this is the wrong way of saying it, but <clears throat> did you basically buy back your company? Is that fair? Like you you, you became the majority owner of your mm-hmm. company again. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk us through that. How did you initiate that process and and why? I imagine that you went from having a, uh, less stressful life mm-hmm. to throwing yourself back in the mix mm-hmm. to a uh, a nine hundred person company. Yeah. So how did you do it, and why did you do it? <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, I, I got to thank the Soros guys once again. They they made it really easy for me, and they you know they wanted to get out of that space. So asked me if I was interested. I I was interested, and I really was afraid of what would happen. Uh, to the legacy of the business if it went to another private equity firm. I, I don't think that my long, the people that have been with Dino for as long as they have would probably stick around for another private equity go around. Um, it was made easy. It, it was, it, they were great to work with on the end. And I just opened up um, uh, a pizza place, a pizza regional. It's across the street from the original dinosaur uh, during my you know, time away from Dinosaur. And being back in the kitchen and starting a brand new concept kind of got my juices flowing again. And then I, when presented this with Dinosaur, I was like, man, it's not going to be a good legacy if I didn't do this. I'd like to, you know, we, as you get into 30 years like I am right now, you start thinking about longevity and what that means and, you know, how you want to see things in the past or in the for the future. Um, so I, I kind of figured that, if I didn't do this, I probably would move. <laughs> so I wouldn't have to see, you know, dinos on a day-to-day basis. So it, um, and, and there's so many great people that work for me and with me at Dino. I wanted to, I want to see them take it over and, and take it over to the next. So tell me about what it was like to look 
internally at mm-hmm. the brand you created with mm-hmm. sort of a fresh pair of eyes. You've mm-hmm. been removed for a minute, right. and then you step back in. It's yours, but it's different. Right. So what was that like to get your hands dirty again? Did you mm-hmm. uncover things that were there happy surprises and were there things that really pissed you off and that you said, oh, my God, I got to fix this like today? Well, I, I, I pretty much knew what I was going to get into. Okay. Um, I, I found that we became very inconsistent. And you could go to one and get something great over there, maybe not as great. I just found a lot of inconsistency and a very fractured team at this point. So the first thing we did was we took and moved everything back to Syracuse. And um, I'm back in, I'm, I'm back, um, I'm almost like chief uh, consistency officer right now. I'm back in the kitchen. I'm reworking recipes. I'm doing, I'm just one, whatever's good, I want to make it great. If it sucks, get rid of it or make it great. There's, there's no middle ground right now. We just want to make everything great. And being back in the kitchen and messing around with all the, the recipes and updating them, I love doing that. That's, that's my sweet spot. And then I got a great team around me, so it makes it easier. So, yeah, there's a ton of challenges, um, but I'm having fun again. Do you have someone who acts as a, a director of logistics or a chief, uh, chief officer or something yeah. along those lines? Is that the yep. structure that you have? Yeah, I have a, I have a, um, a you'll call him a COO. He's, okay. <clears throat> he reports to me, and but he's doing the the logistics, he's, he's the thread between all the restaurants right now. And then each, um, and then there's, um, uh, area directors like, uh, uh, Garth will have uh, Harlem and Brooklyn or Newark. So there's people that have a piece of the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, two to three restaurants. And, um, and that's how we're rebuilding this is getting people. I, I want owners operating the restaurants. I want people to have a stake in it, operating it. And that that's what we're doing and in the process of doing right now. Yeah, speak to that a little bit. There are a couple people that have been with you for a while and yeah. you've you've been able to convert them into having some um of ownership of their locations, right? Yes. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that comes with the luxury of having many locations mm-hmm. and, and being able to do that, but mm-hmm. not everybody does that. Right. So that decision, speak a little about it. Was it done purely from a loyalty perspective? They've been with you for mm-hmm. a long time. What are mm-hmm. the what are the ad- advantages to doing that? Well, the advantage is uh, a little more of a peace of mind thing. And um, you know, I hate to sound like an old guy, but you know, you start thinking when you're when you're sixty in the restaurant business. Still, you do look at the future of like, um, I want them to. So it's uh, it's good for me and it's good for them. Um, Financially, that it can make a big difference in their life, and for me, I'm around people I want to be around, and um, yeah. So I don't know if it's um, it's it's not like I'm just giving it to them for their loyalty. I'm giving it to that's part of it, but they're great operators, and I want to see them take Dino to the next into the next decades. As you look forward about your your future legacy mm-hmm. and how that may grow and what may shape it. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts that you can share on, on how dinosaur can emerge, reemerge under your leadership again mm-hmm. and grow change? What does mm-hmm. that look like? Well, I, I really, I really don't care about growing right now. It's, it's a matter of fact, it's the last thing I want to do. I don't even mind getting smaller. I just want to run great, restaurants. That's all I care about right now. And when we got into a growth period, what happens is it's always the next thing. And therefore you're putting all your energies to what's next. I got eight restaurants, nine restaurants with the, uh, the Italian restaurant. And that, that is enough for me right now. Like I got enough and and I don't care if we even get smaller. I, I don't care. I like the idea of it. So we can, we can be great. I don't want to do this just to open restaurants anymore. I already did that. It really, it wasn't for me. By restaurant standards, you have just 30 years. It's Mm. just an incredibly (laughs) long time. And Mm. you've basically gone, you started before really the internet and 
mm-hmm. Instagram and Yelp were a thing, mm-hmm. and you have weathered that <laughs> that storm <laughs> somewhat. Yes, uh, yes. Do you find that as a whole, the changing of technology has helped the businesses, or is it to the detriment of your restaurants? Um, you know, it's it's definitely different. So, you know, the old days used to get reviewed once, you know, once, two, three, depending on the amount of publications. I get reviewed every day. So you have to monitor that. You have to engage on um, on Instagram and and your Facebook page. And these are not my strong points. So I have um, a nice uh, group of young people that are very good at that. So we don't spend, you know, money on advertising, but we now focus more on, uh, you know, um, uh, the social media aspect of the business. But if you relied on me doing that, it, it just wouldn't go anywhere. So they do it, and they do a good job on it. And uh, I'm very happy to turn that over. The other thing, you know, technology is um, is the Grubhub and the, and the DoorDash is, has changed the business dramatically. You know, where your dining room may be flat, our big growth is food to go. And unfortunately, that comes with a price, you know, 20, 25% whack on your, on your uh, margin on that. But that is what hasn't been great about technology. I, I think it's good for the consumer because nobody wants to call up restaurants anymore. And, you know, that was not great. Get somebody on a busy Saturday night and they're not listening to you properly. So the technology of that is great, but it's, it's finding how to, um, how to make that profitable. And that, that's a big challenge. Yeah, that's... Not only is that a huge challenge for literally any restaurant across the board, but you deal in meat, which Mm -hmm. is not getting cheaper as time goes on. And I assume that with many locations, you've got some vertical integration and Mm -hmm. you've been able to find some efficiencies there. But but how do you, as a big brand, how do you weather the fact that in New York, I'm Mm -hmm. sure it's a bigger problem than in some of your other locations, but in New York specifically, you see restaurants that are – shifting now 60, 70, 80% of their mm-hmm. business is, is delivery only. Right. Uh, are you just kind of rolling with it and, and figuring it out? Like, what are your strategies for, for dealing with that? Well, we, we had to change parts of our, it was more of a to-go thing. And it, you look, again, looking at your packaging, looking at your efficiencies, try to figure out and negotiate better rates because it's not going back. It's not going backwards. Right. It's never going to be what it is, and and I I, I just can't walk away from it. Um, so it, it's it's constant trying to get better at it and to become more efficient. And um, when you have eight restaurants, you don't turn on a dime as quick. You know, like if I had one or two restaurants, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Now, if you do something, now you got to make sure all eight are doing it, and that slows you down a little bit. But um, it, it's yeah, it's it's here to stay, and it's figuring out how to make it profitable, and managing the people that deliver your food. You could plate that up; it could be perfect, but now it travels with somebody else, and things happen along the way. Now that you've uh, you've regained control, it's mm. uh, you're going. You're about two years back in the mix, I would say. One year. One year back in One the mix. Year. What is been a great surprise now that you've fully kind of jumped back into dinosaur mm-hmm. and what's been something that's been just a, a gigantic headache that's been extremely difficult for you since you've gotten back in the mix oh man you know i, I i'm not sure there's one i don't I'm, I'm not sure they go high and low it's a mix of little surprises up and down there's really no one oh my god this is great and oh my god this is terrible um, well, you know, the labor market's different also. I, I'm going to say if, if what's challenging is the labor market. That's probably your biggest challenge right now. And government mandates, big problem. So you, you're operating, if, if you had a 10% bottom line, you've now got a 5% bottom line through no fault of your own, just the environment of the business. So it's, that, that's the most challenging that is that I'm going to say government mandates um, and um, the tight labor market right now are and, two very tough. And aspects. what's what's been the thing that's just been like a real pleasant surprise now that you're back, like managing the thing that you created? Well, we we, we switched over to prime brisket, 
and it's falling back in love with that process of barbecue. And I still uh, look at that and like, that's good. Bar-. When I can say that's good barbecue, that's a, that's, a, uh, that's a win for that day. So it's really when I feel really proud about that food. And I love the way the brisket is. And that's what makes me very happy. So that, that would, and, and, and continual improvement of, you know, our food and our team. And, you know, there's no one magic wand. It's a day-to-day grind of, of um, trying to make things better. But, we're, you know, it, it feels pretty good. And I think that is, that, that's what gets me up in the morning. Still thirty years in, tweaking, yeah. making changes. Oh man, it's still uh, <laughs> searching for the the perfect meat and the perfect day and the perfect dining experience. Yeah. Uh, you've got too many locations to to list them all, mm. but why don't you tell everyone who's listening what's the address of the one in Harlem, what's the address of the one in Syracuse, and obviously mm. they can where they can find you online and and find all the locations. Yeah, um, www.dinobbq.com will get you. Every location, the one in Syracuse on the corner of uh, Willow and Franklin down, uh, downtown, Twelfth um, um, Avenue and 125th Street in Harlem, and Brooklyn is Fourth uh, Avenue in Union. John, thanks so much for being here and sharing some of your story about all the dinosaur barbecues. Congratulations on 30 years in Syracuse, right. 15 years in Harlem, 20, 25 in uh, or 20 in Rochester. Unbelievable. Everyone go check out one of those locations whenever you're nearby. There's a lot in the New York, Connecticut, New Jersey metropolitan areas. John, thanks again. Everybody, thanks for listening. Join us every Tuesday for new episodes of The Line here on Heritage Radio. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.